keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 482 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, and because it's a Monday, we are going to talk about your questions, your feedback, your commentary, your thoughts. Everything is about you, the audience, and things that you sent me by email. If you'd like me to consider a segment uh, on this show for you, on a Monday feedback show, the best way to do that is to send an email, subject line, question for Jack, even if it's an article, even if it's a qu- comment, just put question for Jack, that puts it in the right folder for screening, and uh, send that email to jack at com. again, jack at com. we'll see about getting it in. First things first, so I don't forget, I want to give you an announcement, I will be leaving Wednesday, very early in the morning, when it is dark. My big red truck towing my big RV, and we will be traveling across the country, going to places like Arkansas and Tennessee and hanging out in the wilderness with some friends on a vacation. And unlike some of the vacations I, I take, folks, this is a real vacation. So that means tech support will be sporadic at best while I'm gone. I will not be back for a week and a half. All next week I will be gone. Shows, I don't know how many shows will get done. I'm going to try to do one or two remotely. I'm going to try to do some extra ones this week. I have a guest host show for you that will be on Monday next week. Uh, so at least there's going to be one show next week. I may get back late next week and do a show on Friday. I don't know yet, but this is a real vacation. And, folks, I need to recharge my brain. Okay, I do. I need to I need to take a real bit. This is not like me and Brian going out and doing work for two days and enjoying some drinks afterward. This is a real, honest to God, my wife and me away vacation. So I need that. And uh, I'm going to take another one, too. I'll tell you that toward the end of August, but that will be a much shorter one. Um, so I'm going to make the show better by going away for a while, uh, for, again, about a week. I'll try to get some shows in the interim, but I just want you to be prepared for that. I will be checking email maybe every other day while I'm gone using my AT&T wireless card, giving priority to people that need an answer, like can't log in or having a technical issue. Uh, everything else is going to be on hold till I get back. Sorry about that, but we all need vacations from time to time. Okay, now, before we get into your questions and comments, let's knock out the housekeeping quick today. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you. First up, Mary Beth Maidmont with silverandgoldshop.com. Folks, you know, it's nice to do business where you know the name of the owner of the company. You can do that with Mary Beth, and you know what you can get from her? Silver and gold. And you know what silver and gold is? It's real money. And you get some really unique items from Mary Beth, some interesting silver rounds that aren't that expensive. And that means you can do things like, you know, instead of buying that nephew or niece another piece of crap toy that they're going to throw away for their birthday or Christmas or whatever, how about you put a piece of silver in their hand and you say, hey, you know what, hold on to this because one day this is going to be worth more than it is today. This is real value. I want you to, ca- I want you to keep this. 
Maybe someday you never even sell it. Maybe someday you hand it down to your kids. Maybe they hand it down to their kids. That's the lasting legacy of real money, real value, and real wealth. Check out silverandgoldshop.com for some really creative ways to do things like that. Next up today is uh, the Lifesaver 4000 from Ready-Made Resources. Awesome filtration product, filters down to .015 microns, smaller than any bacteria or virus out there, making virtually any water safe to drink. So check out the Lifesaver 4000. That's a great way to have portable, on-the-go, safe water to drink in just about any situation that you'll ever end up in. Next, make sure to connect with us, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. I do try to be active on Twitter and Facebook. Bunch of YouTube videos will be coming when I get back from this vacation. That's the one thing we're going to be doing is shooting YouTube videos like crazy while we're out there to build up some material to publish over time. So get subscribed to the YouTube channel. Become our fan on Facebook. Folks, I keep getting a lot of friend requests from people I've never met. I've stopped taking personal friend requests. I, I, I just can't have 5,000 friends on Facebook because then I can't keep up with the people that I know on a first-name basis. So I have to create separation. doesn't mean that I'm not your friend. just means that I have to create separation from personal and business life. So become my fan on Facebook for the Survival Podcast, and there's a Jack Spearco public figure page as well. Both of those you can sign up for, and I promise you, if you post to those... I will interact with you that way. In fact, I spend more time interacting with my, my fan pages than my personal page, if that tells you anything. Uh, so, so just you know, use that method to connect with me on Facebook. Real quick, um, want to again uh, throw out to you guys, if you're not a member of the Support Brigade yet, consider doing that. If you listen to this show for an hour every day, got to believe that you're getting something out of it. If you think that something is worth 20 cents, join the Support Brigade. Uh, and when you do that, I'll give you a return of investment because I don't take donations at this show. I take your money in return for value, and that is 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else. That is over $100 worth of free ebooks at $50 a year. That is discounts to about 20 different vendors. That is a great deal in return for you, you uh, supporting the show and making it possible. So there you go with that. And last but not least, remember one more time, I will be on vacation, and I'm going to enjoy it. And uh, I'm sorry that you're going to do without some shows, and I'm sorry that you might have to wait two or three days to get an answer on some of your emails while I'm gone. I'm going to try to beef that up with better tech support going down the road. I'm going to try to hire kind of a, v a virtual assistant uh, by the end of the year. But for right now, it's just me, and because of that, when I take a vacation, I'm gone. With that, uh, instead of being gone, let's talk about being here and what we can do to help you guys, because that's what this show's really all about. First one that comes in is one I don't have. A perfect answer for it, but I'm going to do the best I can. Here's the question. It comes from a guy named Tom. Tom says, Jack, our food preps are growing, and we want a room with humidity and temperature control. We're in Austin. We have no root cellar, and we're not willing to keep the AC cranked up. Any suggestions? I thought of building a rammed earth tire shed, earth ship, which would have thick walls and using clay stucco inside the shed to help regulate humidity. This seems overkill and would likely take up a lot of room on our quarter-acre lot, but should be almost indestructible. Or should I look into modifying our existing house pantry? Thanks for your work, Tom. All right, here you go. Um, first of all, before anybody takes off on building an Earthship-style home, which is basically you take tires and you stack them up and you fill them with dirt. And I mean, basically, you put dirt in the middle, you take a sledgehammer, and you pound these tires packed with earth. Uh, it is an amazing structure. It is an amazing use of a wasted resource like a tire. It is damn near indestructible, as Tom says. 
It has an amazing ability to thermoregulate and stay at a reasonable temperature, especially if you go somewhat subterranean, meaning you're underground with at least a portion of it. Before you decide that is what you want to do, anybody, whether it's a, a house, in, you're going to build yourself in the desert, or a shed in your backyard with these tires. Get one tire, take some dirt, pack it full. And then decide if you really want to do this and realize how much dirt you're going to need and why so many of these structures are partially subterranean. One, you need the dirt. And two, um, it creates less work if part of your walls are not actually tires that are packed, but earth. right? Maybe you reinforce that structure some. It is a tremendous amount of work to pack one tire. I did it one time just to see what it was like. It's unbelievable how much dirt goes into a tire when you pack it the proper way. It is amazing how hard it is. It is amazing how long it takes. So earth ships, beautiful. If someone can come up with a mechanized way to pack tires, I think maybe they're a little bit more viable. Uh, the amount of work that goes into building even a small earth ship structure, um, you will not appreciate until you do that. So I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying don't underestimate the amount of effort. <clears throat> and it may be overkill for what you want. There's a couple things you could do. One, you could spend an awful lot of money to try to create a climate-controlled area with larger space, whether it's digging a hole in the ground, whether it's uh, you know building an earth chip, whether it's putting an addition on your home with a separate climate control. There's all different types of things that you could do, and all of them will cost a lot of money. Some of them may enhance the value of your property. Some of them may detract from the value of your property, depending on your marketplace, your home price point, where you're going to sell to, all these different things. <clears throat> Or you could just spend a fraction of the cost and buy food that is preserved in such a way that it's less sensitive to temperature fluctuations, uh, enabling you to do something like maybe just putting in a nice uh, – outbuilding, storage shed style type of building uh, with some limited climate control in it that would keep the temperature, let's say, below 80 degrees. Uh, with temperatures like that, products like Mountain House have amazing storage lives and humidity is not a huge concern. So maybe instead of spending the money on the structure, you spend the money on the food, especially if you plan to move anytime soon because the food is portable and the modifications to the property are not. If you're going to stay put, then... With a quarter acre, that's a pretty decent sized lot. And you might want to look at a subterranean structure of some sort. Uh, even if that's simply hiring a guy with a backhoe to dig a hole and go away. And building your structure out of something inexpensive but very durable like cinder blocks, concrete, and reinforced rebar. And uh, creating basically a root cellar. Uh, Austin, your, you know, your, your, your dirt down there doesn't really preclude that the way that it's, it's very difficult to do that here in the Dallas area because we have so much clay. We have this black clay, and a drainage is an issue, and shifting soil is an issue. You have a lot more um, uh, drainable soil, more sand content, uh, more sandy loam and, and pure sand and, and rock and gravel in Austin. So as long as you don't have a, a rock, hard rock floor that, that's going to be very expensive to excavate, it may be your best option. I'll also tell you that living in, in Texas, anywhere from you know up where I live, out west, out east, all the way down you know to, to Houston – through Austin in the hill country, one of our biggest natural threats is tornadic activity, and a subterranean structure doubles as a tornado shelter, and it would be a huge selling advantage to have. Even if, you know, the people that bought it weren't survivalist-minded, there isn't a person that lives in this state that doesn't get a chill on their neck when they see tornado, not watch, but warning 
come across their TV screen, and the newscast interrupts their favorite shows and says, there is a tornado in your area now, here's its pathway, and they realize they're close to or in that path. It is on the minds of every Texan with a brain, and most people with brains are the people who have money and buy houses. I believe a tornado survivable structure in this state is a huge selling advantage for any property. So that might do double duty for you, and I think it would cost you less in the long term than building an earthship type structure. You could hybridize this. You could build a subterranean earthship with only a portion of it coming up. You could, and you could, you know, build a lawn on top of either structure so that it doesn't really seem to take up as much space. You know, if you have a gentle rise and fall, it could actually become some, somewhat of a structure that the, the property, you know, enhances the view of the property. So that's going to be your best bet. As far as modifying your, your pantry, I guess you could put more climate control into your pantry, but your problem there is more spatial than climate. Um, I think that anything that you consider livable in your home is going to be pretty decent for storing your food. Make sure you're maximizing all your space. You're using under bed storage and things like that. Um, another option that's nowhere near as good would be uh, just simply putting in a, uh, like I said, an outbuilding and putting some level of climate control in that. Uh, it'll cost money, but you would be surprised at how if you took, let's say, a very small structure but would hold a lot of food, a 10 by 12 outbuilding, insulated it uh, completely and put a very small window unit and set a thermostat in there, not a thermostat that the air conditioner, you know, those little window units, their thermostats suck, right? But if you set a thermostat up, an external thermostat uh, between the, uh, the electrical outlet and the, the, the air conditioner itself, that was set to hold the temperature in around 80 degrees, it wouldn't take that much to keep a structure that size relatively cool. Uh, the reason I know that is I used to do cable TV work, and we used to build what are called head-end distribution systems uh, in those little structures like that. And it was remarkably efficient to keep cool as long as it was insulated, and you're not trying to cool it down to 70, like a, you know, a habitation temperature. That would give you more structure with some level of control and, of course, you could always uh, heat it if necessary if it got too cold, but you probably wouldn't even deal with that in Austin. That's not as good a solution. Subterranean structure, if you can afford it and make it happen, would be your best bet for this situation. Let's go ahead and take some more of uh, your questions and feedback. Here's an interesting question, and I'm going to answer it by changing the, the answer a little bit. Uh, this comes from uh, Brent, uh, Brent Amer, who is uh, happy to give his name. I uh, like that. Uh, short, he says, in a survival situation, what do you look for in an energy protein bar? Uh, percentage of fat, carbs, and uh, protein. Long, I'm going to buy a couple dozen of these and confused about the distinct array of brands, maybe a brand recommendation, and I'll vacuum seal them and hopefully get a few years of storage life. Um, so here's the thing, Brent. Um, as far as energy bars, don't make them complicated because they're energy bars. If you want to do the energy bar route, here's what I would say to do. Go to a place where they sell energy bars. Unless you're going to have them in a place where it's not going to get hot, stay away from chocolate. Buy a crap ton of them. Different brands, different varieties, and eat them. And if you like one, that's a good one to have around. Buy something you'll want to eat. From a pure logistical standpoint, though, I'm actually not a big fan of the energy protein bar thing for emergency rations. Uh, I am much a bigger fan of the emergency ration bars from people like Daytrek and Mainstay. And they're actually not that bad. The mainstay lemon cookie ones are actually pretty damn good. And the reason is because they are 
very calorically dense, allowing me to, to store enough calories for a full day in a very small area. Uh, way less than I would by using, um, uh, you know, these bars. Uh, because, but the, the, the difference is they're a little bit less of a, of a pleasure as far as filling because they're so calorically dense. You don't get as much time to chew things and stuff like that, which if you're kind of stuck in a place can be a detriment because let's face it, eating is a, is a pleasure, especially in a bad situation and, and taste and texture. So maybe you kind of blend both of them, but the mainstay day trek style bars are already packaged for you long term. They already have lights sealed out. They're already vacuum sealed. Uh, they're designed to handle harsh environments. They have long-term storage lives. Uh, they're already designed to be a, a well-balanced uh, assortment of fat, carbs, and protein, uh, where a, an energy bar is really designed for, you know, to take on a camping trip and uh, when you're going to go on a hike to give you an energy boost or to carb up or to protein up before lifting weights or something like that. They're not bad. They're just not purpose-built. And, and my belief is, if you're dealing with a situation, the first question is, is there something purpose-built for the situation? And is the purpose-built item uh, a good item? Does it, does it fill its role well? Just because it's purpose-built doesn't mean it will. So if uh, I'm going to water grass and there's a sprinkler that's made for watering grass, well, it doesn't do a good job. It, it, it might, it might not, depending on its design and whether it leaks and how long, how, how long it lasts and whatever. But when we look at the purpose-built concept of the ration bar, they do their job very well. They provide a good assortment of nutrients. Uh, they are very calorically dense. They have extremely long shelf lives. They take up a very little bit of space. And I use them to extend my food in my bug-out bag. My bug-out bag is enough food to sustain me uh, for six, not three days. Without ration bars, I could not pull that off. I could not keep the volume of food necessary safely long-term in that bag without sacrificing space for other items I deem critical. So I'm going to say if you're really worried about emergency planning, go with a purpose-built ration bar. If you still want to keep some energy bars in addition for uh, your survival preparedness, there's nothing wrong with that. But let's not even really, because they all are pretty much the same. Okay, they're all a bunch of crap that people put together to try to sell to a guy that either wants to put on muscle or lose weight. So find something that tastes good, use its calorie count, put that against your rations like you would a can of beans. How many calories does it have? Does it got carbs, fat, protein? Take a look at that and, and do it just like anything else in your pantry. For the purpose, go with a ration bar. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Okay, my buddy Greg, who uh, runs the blog RV-103.com, that took an early retirement from NASA and is driving around all the country and enjoying his life instead of uh, being a slave to the grind, sent me another great story. He always sends me great stories. And this one is uh, on a blog called RawStory.com, and it is called More and More Americans Preparing for Social Unrest. And it's apparently pretty popular because it's been retweeted 72 times, it's been shared on Facebook 958 times, and it's had 29 digs. So apparently people like this story, so I figured I'd read part of it to you in case you haven't seen it. Uh, again, it's called More and More Americans Preparing for Social Unrest. From outside, Jerry Erwin's home in, north, in the northwestern U.S. state of Oregon is a nondescript house with a manicured front lawn and little to differentiate it from his neighbor's. But tucked away, out of sight in his backyard, are signs of his preparedness for doomsday. A catastrophic social collapse that Irwin, 45, now believes is likely within his lifetime. 
I've got under an awning stacks of firewood, rain catching in barrels. I've got a shed with barbed Constantina wire, like the military uses. He and his wife have also stockpiled thousands of rounds of ammunition and enough food for about six months. Several years ago, I worked on paying off the house, replacing the windows, and just recently, I'm proud to say we've replaced all our exterior doors with more efficient ones. See, that's real preparedness, folks. We've got to focus on his thousands of rounds of ammunition. One of Betty has a few bricks of .22s, um, and this guy just wants to write this story this way. Uh, with as much built-in security filters as I could get, he told the AFP. I guess this came off the American Free Press originally then. Plus, I'm going to be adding some structural improvements to the door frames to make it virtually impossible to take a battering ram to them. So he's, he's reinforced his doors. Erwin and others like him in the United States and elsewhere see political upheaval and natural disasters as clear signs that civilization is doomed. We're hitting on all cylinders as far as symptoms uh, that have led to other great powers to decline or collapse. Resource depletion, damage to the environment, climate change, those are the same things that affected other great societies, he said. I like the climate change statement in there. They've already affected other great societies. So it's not whether or not your tailpipe is making the earth warm. It's that, you know, because I think that's bullshit, by the way, in case you don't know. Um, it's that sometimes the climate changes and it screws things up, whether we have anything to do with it or not. Uh, for Irwin, the decline is irreversible, and the best approach is to prepare for the inevitable. His pessimism is shared by a wide range of people from left-wing environmentalists who believe climate change and capitalist greed will doom human society to Christian fundamentalists who think sin will do the same. We're always nuts, aren't we, when they talk about us? They label themselves preppers, doomers, and survivalists and take a wide and take a variety of different approaches to the same question, how to best prepare for the coming apocalypse. Oh, man, I just get tired of this stuff. James Rawls, who Irwin describes as the patron saint of survivalism. I think James Rawls doesn't want to be called the patron saint of anything. I think James Rawls would be like, dude, stop calling me crap like that. I don't pretend to speak for him, but prefers an isolation, Christian-influenced approach. He homeschooled his children, declines to stay where he lives, and advises readers, his website, survival blog, to relocate to a safe area and live there year-round. This is why I like James Rawls and I don't like James Rawls. That's the only way you can be a survivalist, guys. Relocate to an undisclosed location, live there year-round, and hide from everybody. <sighs> when planning your retreat house, think medieval castle, he adds, extolling the benefits of using sandbags to protect any new home. Rawls, like many on the conservative end of the survivalist spectrum, is also an anti-tax, pro-gun rights, suspicious of anything that smacks of socialism. But the survivalist movement also includes left-wing community activists who are devoted to living off the land and never fired a weapon. And people like Chris Martinson, who quit a job with a six-figure salary he felt was an unnecessary diversion from real tasks at hand, began growing his own food and developed crash course that urges people to better prepare for social instability. He also overtook management of his investments and boasts a 166% return on his portfolio. Folks, I like Chris Martinson all around, 100%. I don't agree with every conclusion he makes, but the best guy I've seen in this article so far is Martinson. You should check out his site, and you should watch Crash Course. I've tried to get the guy on the show. If you know him or can get an email to him, let him know I am looking for him. I really like Chris Martinson. Martinson, for Martinson, the wake-up call was September 11, 2001, when he felt gripped by uncertainty and totally unprepared. Irwin had always felt that society would eventually disintegrate, 
Uh, but he and many other U.S. survivalists say the dysfunctional response to the 2005 Katrina uh, is what spurred them into action. I thought, okay, things are not going to get better. Maybe the society, our civilization, the American Empire will collapse during my lifetime. I'm going to stop reading here. If you want to read the rest of this article, you can. This article, in some ways, freaking nauseates me. I am so freaking sick of every time the media wants to talk about survivalism, they throw one guy in there with a brain, like Martinson, and then they, and I'm not even saying that the jury Irwin, this guy that has the stuff in Oregon, is a bad guy, uh, and I'm not saying James Rawls is a bad guy, because I, I think both of these guys are pretty solid in what they're doing for themselves. But they have to sensationalize everything about them. You know, James Rawls gives a lot of very practical advice on his blog, in addition to some of the things that I see as kind of extreme, you know, during a peacetime situation, let's put it that way. Uh, this Irwin guy, I don't know if, if he and I would get along great, but I think we'd get along pretty well. But, of course, we have to accentuate the fact that he has thousands of rounds of ammunition. Folks, if you go to the store and buy four bricks of .22 shells, that's that's 2,000 rounds of ammunition. And every newspaper writer in America looks for opportunities to use the phrase thousands of rounds of ammunition when talking about anything. This shit makes me sick. And this shit keeps people that are normal from joining us in preparing. Because they think this is what they have to be. They have to be a left-wing freak or a conservative, you know, Christian extremist to be a survivalist. The reality is the majority of survivalists and preppers are logical, normal people that hold down jobs, that live among everybody else, that simply understand that things go wrong at certain times and want to be prepared in case they do. They're people that live low on debt. They're people that work hard. They're people that believe in the ideas of their nation and their community, but maybe are not happy with everything that's going on. Yeah, we're suspicious of socialism, because socialism sucks. Plain and simple. And everywhere it's been tried, it's failed. So, because we're smart people, when somebody wants to do something that screwed up everything in the past, we don't want to do it again. That doesn't mean that we're like, you know, anti-government, black helicopters are circling us freaks. I, I weary of articles like this. And I wish more journalists out there would be freaking responsible and report the reality about survivalists. So if anybody out there knows a journalist or is a journalist, quit writing bullshit like this and start writing the truth. I'd really appreciate that. Stop scaring people that the survivalists are freaks. Or maybe they're right and you better do it too because being a freak is the only, you know, any of those angles. You know, it might just be a good idea if something went wrong in your neighborhood to be able to feed, clothe, shelter yourself, and evacuate yourself. That's not insanity. That's not, that's not freakishness. And they don't have to be of any religious belief or any political belief to see the value in that. I guess unless you're a newspaper writer or a blogger uh, or anybody that works for the mainstream media. Uh, let's go take another one before I just get pissed. I'm not going to spend much time on this next one. It comes from a guy named Adam. And uh, it's, you know, you think that only we're stupid enough over here with people like Monsanto to be screwing around with the gene pool and, you know, genetically modifying plants and pigs and stuff. But no, scientists in Russia and Belarus have worked together to modify a goat. Yep, they have a goat that produces a human milk substitute. Let me read this to you real quick. Russian dairy goats can produce milk containing human protein. 
Several cubs with human genome in their DNA were born at a farm in Moscow's region of Shatysky District as part of a joint Russian-Belarus research project. Five years have passed since scientists from Russia and Belarus uh, started experiments to obtain goat milk containing lactofernin. This human breast milk element protects a baby from viruses and bacteria while its own immune system develops. And if you want to read the rest of the article, I will put a link into uh, today's show notes. Don't anybody email me and tell me a baby goat is a kid, not a cub. I know that. This is a Russian website translated to English. I read it to you as it was written. Uh, the only reason I bring this up is it's just another indicator of what I've said. The problem with GMOs, genetically modified organisms, going into things that we're going to ingest and eat, is these people will never stop. Nothing is considered too far for these people. We are now taking a goat, modifying it at the DNA level to produce a human protein, taking that milk and going to feed it to children in the most de developmental stage of their existence. And this isn't done in evil, capitalist, Western society. No, being done in Russia. Great stuff, huh, folks? I'll leave it to you to make your own uh, assessment of that from that point out. Next question comes to me from Linda. Okay, Linda asks, which hand crank radio do you recommend? And at one time, this was the easiest question I could have ever been asked because it is the Grundig, Grundig FR200. Uh, I have two of them. They are wonderful little hand crank radios. Uh, they get a lot of battery life from a little bit of cranking. They're durable. They work great. Love them. They have uh, AM, FM, shortwave, and weather. So why don't I recommend it anymore? I do. Problem? I don't know where you can get one. Uh, they have been unavailable on Amazon.com for several weeks. I actually tried to buy one for a gift for somebody recently and found that they were out of stock. Today when I got this question, I thought, oh yeah, uh, let me go see if they're back in stock and they're not in stock. So I have not been able to find uh, that radio. And the thing I liked about it is it sell, sells for a rate around like a $20 to $30 price point when it's available. I also don't see it on Grundig's website. Uh, they seem to have gone into much more high-end radios, internet radio, satellite radio, all kinds of great stuff, but I don't see anything about it anymore. So I'm wondering if maybe it's been discontinued, and if so, it is a shame, because it was the best one. I do not like the Cato Voyager at all. Uh, I did a review of that, and that, that review basically had this thing fail on all counts. However, I've heard from other people that love the Cato Voyager. So you can look at that, but all I can tell you is when I bought one, and you can look at my review, it got poor reception, it had poor battery life, it didn't charge well, uh, it wouldn't pick up a single uh, band of the weather band stations when I could pick that up on every other weather radio that I have. Um, I, it was just a piece of crap, as far as I could tell. The accessories that came with it were junk. The only way it charges a cell phone is if you sit there and crank it while the cell phone's plugged in. It doesn't give that much... I mean, there was just like... There was so many things it did that it tried to do too many things, and it didn't do any of them well, including be a radio. Again, if you have a good one, and you'd like to prove me wrong, mail it to me. I'll review your good one. But the one I touched was crap. So the best thing that I found, and unfortunately this costs more... Um, To fill the, 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 the gap that I thought the Grundig was stellar at is a, a radio by Etron made for the American Red Cross, and it's called the FR360, and it has two built-in emergency flashlights, which is a really nice touch. It sells for about 80 bucks on Amazon, but this thing is a workhorse. Uh, I've purchased one for my home. 
Uh, it does have the same concept of being able to charge cell phones by turning the hand crank, uh, but it won't, you know, charge the cell phone just by plugging it in. Uh, but it is, it does have that feature. It's not a feature I really like. I think there's better tools for that, but it does have that feature. The big thing is you get a good, uh, period of, uh, of battery life out of this thing, and it's well built. And what I like about the tuning is it's digital. And I found that even the Grundig, a lot of times, the, the old-style radio dials, when they build them today, they don't seem to be very accurate. You know, and you're trying to find 101, and you're up around 103, and you're not sure where you're at, and is that what... I mean, it just doesn't seem to, to, to line up the way it should. So digital tuning has an advantage uh, on that to me. It might use a little bit more power, but with a good power source, it's mitigated. Uh, good lighting... Good tool. I'll put a link to where you can take a look at this thing on Amazon.com today. Again, it's made by Eton. It's the American Red Cross FR360. And may I make a completely different suggestion? I have become a huge fan recently of the um, the Power Dome EX uh, Jump Start Pack, which has a radio built into it. It does not have weather radio. It does not have shortwave, but it has AM, FM, and the damn thing. When you keep it charged up by plugging it into an outlet in your house, it's a backup power source and a backup radio. It only sells for about a hundred bucks, so it's only twenty bucks more than this Red Cross radio. And it will jumpstart your car. It will put air in your tires. It will blow up a raft because it has an air compressor built into it. It has a great little radio built into it that has pretty good sound. It has backup lighting. You can plug a fan into it. Uh, I would rather have two of these. Uh, then have two uh, backup uh, emergency radios. I won't get rid of them because I already have them, but if I was allocating my resources today, these do more, and they do it well. And they come with a little 12 VDC charger, so even in a long-term blackout, you could go out to your car, plug it into your cigarette lighter, run your car for a while, and put some charge back into them, as long as you had a vehicle available. Uh, so I really like the power domes. I would not do it in lieu of an emergency radio, but it might be a good counterbalance uh, to be able to do that because the power dome does so much more. And again, I'll put a link to the power dome, and I think one belongs in every car you own. That's how I feel about the power, power dome. Um, the fact that if you you know have a battery die in a parking lot, your wife won't be asking some strange man to help her jump her car. Men, get one for your wife. Put it in her car. Teach her how to freaking use it. Uh, that's a hundred bucks that as long as you have the money, it will be well spent and you will never regret it. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. And yes, if you use the links to Amazon, I will get a small commission. I appreciate you supporting the show that way. If you're going to buy the item anyway, if you're not going to buy the item, don't buy it just to make me happy. Here's a, uh, this is a great question. Let's, uh, let's look into this one. There's a lot to talk about here. Uh, this comes from Brian. Brian says, Hi Jack, what are your thoughts on using an RV as part of a rural relocation plan? Uh, we are working on our debt and are planning to be debt free in three years or less. You know what? First let me say, hooah, congratulations, keep it up, and I'm proud of you. I really am, and I bet you can do it in two. I know you can. Do it, make it happen, it will change your life forever for the better. God bless you for being debt free. All right, next. Our plan for the last couple of years has been to sell our current suburban home at, at, at that time and move to a more rural location where we can get a standard home, three-bed, two-bath, etc., for about the same price in town, but also get 10-plus acres with it. 
after some conversation and a recent camping trip. I don't know if you did this on your camping trip, though, Brent. Um, I've got the wife actually excited about purchasing a good-sized RV, used one, looking for raw land, either with improvements such as electric well, septic, or doing those ourselves, and then just living out of the RV. I'd like to add a shop and not only use the shop for projects and equipment, but to put in a full-size uh, bathroom, laundry facilities, and maybe extra living space, an office, uh, canning kitchen, etc. I'm thinking we could do this much cheaper than buying a home of the same size lot and incur much less debt to do this. And you don't want to go into debt when you just got out of it, right? Uh, we also think that the addition of the shop, we'd be pretty happy with it. There's also the likelihood of adding a small cabin or manufactured home later, but this would reduce the initial cost and get us out of the suburbs and give us room to work with lots of peace. What are your thoughts on this? My only caveat, when you went ca camping, Brian, did you stay in an RV? And how long were you there? I'm going to make you a suggestion that I, I really suggest you take before you commit to doing this. Go rent an RV and live in it for a period of no less than two weeks. Make it an extended vacation. Rent one and have it parked in your front yard and live in it and don't go in your house for two weeks. Just experience it for more than a couple days. If you already did that, that's fine. But I'm really suggesting you understand what it's like to live in one before you commit to it. That said, you can adapt to anything. It's just going to be really bad if you get her excited and then she's angry a year into the thing, right? So you got to be really sure of what you're doing. Now, the downside of RV living. They are not very energy efficient, so they cost more to cool and heat even with less floor space and less square feet. So you do have that issue. You are in Oregon, so you have pretty mild, as long as you're on the right side of the mountain range there, you have pretty mild winters and summers. So that's going to mitigate that, so that's a good thing. Your plan of building additional outbuilding space and putting a full-size bathroom and things like that, that's great. And if it's really cold in the middle of the night and you got to go to the bathroom, at least you don't have to go out like you're going to an outhouse. You know, you can go take care of business in the RV's bathroom. But things like taking a shower and things like that, you're going to want to air condition that bathroom area, though. So when you get out of a bathroom, you know, and it's hot in the summertime, and you're going to want to heat it as well. But that's okay. I like the plan. I just want you to be sure of what you're getting into. Seeing it also as a possible transition to later on bringing in a nice manufactured home uh, or a building a cabin or something like that is a great idea as well. I'm going to also suggest, though, that you do a comparative analysis on all the costs and you do consider going straight to a manufactured home. I'm not saying to do it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the RV. I'm not saying the RV doesn't have advantages because if you had to, as long as you have a vehicle capable of pulling it, You could leave with your, you know, the majority of your, your possessions with you and get the hell out in an emergency. That's another huge advantage of an RV. But you might find manufactured housing to be a better solution and a very cost-effective solution as well. Look at a manufacturer called Solitaire. If anybody out there looking at manufactured housing, you know, trailer housing as they used to call it, but they really have come a long way. And of all the ones I've looked at, Solitaire seems to be the best built uh, stuff out there. It's you, When you're inside one, it is very hard to tell that it's a manufactured home at all. It's, you know, drywall, it's, it's, it's good moldings, it's quality everything. And they're not that expensive, especially for maybe a smaller three-bedroom model, which is going to still be a lot bigger than most site-built homes and can be had in the $60,000 range. Uh, that's the price of an Escalade, right? So just consider that as an option. All I'm saying is 
don't write off the RV. Just make sure you price out everything and look at the effects of everything, both the cost and the long-term living effects of everything. A really good idea may simply be to do your plan and you can always build something and you can always sell off the RV. I'm definitely inclined to agree with you to buy used. You're going to save a ton of money that way, especially on a vehicle that's going to primarily be used stationary. One thing I want you to know about RVs, though, shit breaks. It's like a boat. It's not like a house. Stuff breaks on RVs more often than it breaks on houses. Things have to be fixed. You need specialty parts. You'll become an expert on RVs after about a year of living in one because you'll have to be. Um, and you're probably going to want to buy something that has service available in the area. So when you're shopping for used ones, also look at the brand and see if there's a dealer somewhere near you. So if you need parts or some specialized help, you can get it. And talk to a dealer before you trust them. Even if you're buying a used one from somewhere else, you're going to use them for service and parts. The people I bought, brought from Mays RV in Louisville, they did a wonderful job of selling me an RV. They gave me a great price. These people are like beating yourself in the face to get service from. They act like you're retarded when you ask them for something. No one is helpful. When you ask for a recommendation on an accessory, they're like they're all the same. And I'm like, well, you're charging 50% more for this one, so I hope there's a reason that it's in your shop. And they're like, well, I really can't help you with that. You have to make your own decision. So if you're going to use an RV dealership for service, please talk to them first and make sure you're dealing with people that are not retarded. Because the people I'm dealing with, I hate to say this, they're freaking retarded. Now, the service guys, once you get to them, are actually pretty damn good up there. But the front office people you have to talk to to get to the service people or to walk through their shop and ask, hey, is this a good product to add to my RV, are completely incompetent boobs. And I just don't even want to go near the place. So there's another piece of advice from somebody that's learned the hard way. Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, I'm going to knock this one out really quick, but I, uh, I did find it an interesting question and something to think about. Comes from Mike. Mike says, hey, uh, what effect do you think the concussion of discharging a firearm would have in an indoor home defense situation? I've been shooting all my life. My wife has just taken a serious interest in concealed carry. Who are good for you, ma'am? Defend yourself. Protect yourself. And if somebody accosts you, give them a free membership in the Dirt Nap Society, and there'll be one less woman harmed you, and probably 20 less because the word will get out that you're more likely to get shot if you mess with a woman now, and there'll be less people less likely to do it. So who on that? We've traveled to an indoor range to rent some handguns to see what she liked. I've never discharged a firearm indoors. I'm a firm believer of eye and ear protection. So I rolled up my yellow foam earplugs and stuffed them in my ears. My wife had plugs and muffs. When she touched off the 9mm, it was like I was slapped upside the head from both sides. I went and borrowed a set of muffs from the range boss. That got me thinking about defending my home. The nightstand gun is a Ruger Blackhawk in 44 Magnum. Boy, this guy doesn't mess around, does he? Hit barks, I guess so. Uh, there's also a 12-gauge shotgun, AR immediately available. If I have to defend my home or fight my way out of it, it's likely there would be some shooting in an enclosed staircase with poor acoustics. My cat sounds like a herd of buffalo coming up the steps. The sonic shock would certainly have some effect on the shooter and shootee. Even if I managed to miss someone in that enclosed space, I think there would be real damage from the boom on unprotected ears. On the other hand, when shooting a weather, you know, a Weatherby Super Magnum at a squirrel, you would never even notice the recoil. Maybe this applies to indoor shooting and sonic shock. Um, let me put it to you this way. First of all, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. 
Um, you do not have time, or is it a good idea to be trying to put on ear protection inside your home in a home defense situation? You need to be able to hear, you need to be able to see, you need to be able to move, and you need to do it optimally and instantly. So is it a problem? The, the short answer is it doesn't matter if it is. Because being alive is more important uh, than having maybe some hearing damage. The reality, you could have some hearing damage. Um, it all depends on where, when, how, and in what relationship you are to the discharge farm. Part of the reason you got hit so hard with your wife firing that 9mm, though, indoor ranges are the worst for sound reverberation. The entire way they're built, it's worse than a house. And you have those shooting lanes with those two walls to separate the shooters. And if you're in those walls, whether you're getting that shit bounced back and forth left to right. So it is, it is opt, you know, it is the worst that there is. You're also standing off to the side of the person discharging the weapon and you're creating no cone. When you fire a weapon, your leading ear, so if you're a right-handed shooter with a pistol, your left ear is generally taking the, the mainstay of the, the concussion. Your right ear is partially shielded by your head, and you get some protection just from that cone effect. You also are directly behind versus the side of the weapon and tend to get less concussion back at you. So the shooter is somewhat protected from the concussion. People directly to their side are generally in the area of most danger. That doesn't mean you don't wear hearing protection, but it means for one or two shots in a defensive situation, the shooter's offered some protection. The person being shot, I don't give a shit. You shouldn't have broken into my house. Hearing problems are the last thing that you're going to have anyway after somebody d dumps, you know, a 240-grain hollow point from a 44 Magnum into your chest. You know, the hell with him. Other people in the home, I mean, it's, again, it's a problem, but there's no solution other than the fact that they should not be to your side anyway unless you have two people armed in the house. And unless you've trained for it, it's probably better to have one. Um, I'm going to tell you that in most home invasion scenarios, the best thing that you can do if you can get everybody back into one area is set up ambush and wait on the, the, the assailant instead of wandering through the home. Uh, that gives you the advantage shooting from a place of cover and or concealment. Uh, and being able to light up your target and not make a discharge on a target you should not shoot if it happens to be like, I don't know, maybe your, 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 your son that wasn't supposed to come home from college came home a day early. Uh, people have made mistakes like that. You don't want to make one. Wives, you're scared. Your husband was away and he thought it would be cool to come home in the middle of the night one day early from his business trip and surprise you. Uh, things like that. Uh, or some, some scared kid that climbed in your house that's not there to burglarize it that's looking for help. I mean, there's all, or a dog that got in through your pet door. I mean, I don't know. You want to be able to light up your target if you possibly can before discharge. You want to be sure of your target. We all know this. Uh, so an ambush situation is the way to go. Concussion? Yes. Deal with it. I mean, that, that's all I can say. Uh, and I don't think it will affect you in the moment. Your adrenaline will be so high uh, that it won't affect you. I can't say there won't be any lasting impact of it. But what it really comes down to is what's worse, uh, temporary or even permanent hearing loss or being raped or murdered in your own home. I'll take the hearing loss if I have to. And again, as the shooter, you will be afforded some protection to at least one of your ears. Your big thing is you want any kind of a partner not directly to the side of the weapon on discharge. Best thing to do for you, let's take another one. This is a really cool one. Um, it's got two different, like a question and a suggestion, and I like this a lot. It comes from Keith. 
Uh, Keith says, can you go over how easy it can be to make wine, meat, or beer? Really touch base on some of the easiest, fastest ways to make some wine, even using things like store-bought apple juice. Okay, first of all, I did a whole show on beer and wine making. Uh, I'll try to find that for you guys today by using the search function. But always, if you're looking for a topic and you can't find it on the site, there's a search bar. Stick the words in there, beer, wine, beer making, wine making, mead making, and you'll, you'll find... Uh, a lot of times that there's been a previous show, and you might have to go through two or three shows to find what you're really looking for, but that's why there's show notes. So you don't have to listen to it. You can go through the show notes and see, is this really what I'm looking for? So uh, try that function out, and there's a great show I did back when I was still broadcasting for my car on that subject. It goes more into detail. But the, uh, the easiest way to make like a wine or a cider, go get a good gallon of, uh, of, of like an apple cider uh, and a good quality brewer's yeast. Uh, open it up. Uh, pitch the yeast in there. Maybe dump a little bit out to create some headspace uh, before you pitch your yeast. <coughs> Excuse me. And you can use a dry yeast for this. It's a good dry brewer's yeast you can get from a homebrew shop or order online. Uh, and, and replace the lid loosely so that air can escape or do something like place a balloon over the top of it and occasionally uh, go in and let it gas off the balloon so that nothing gets in and the air is allowed to get off. They use an airlock for uh, that if you use something like a carboy, which is a big glass bottle that looks like uh, the stuff that you would place uh, a water bottle on top of one of the office water coolers in. But you can do this just right in the gallon jug the apple juice comes in. And that will make kind of a low-end, low-alcohol cider slash apple wine. Plenty of people do that, and they're very pleased with the results. Uh, I always kind of like it, but it's not that great. Um Stepping it up, you know, you can look at, you get a good food-grade five-gallon bucket with a sealable lid uh, and cut a hole in the lid. And if you buy it from a home brew shop, it'll probably already have a hole in the lid and buy an airlock. Those two things are going to set you back a whopping maybe 15 bucks. And then you can do things like simply go to the store and buy four or five gallons of apple juice and do a little bit better of a job fermenting. Maybe add a little bit of corn sugar to uh, boost the alcohol content to it. Maybe get creative just tossing in. You know, I've made mead, a low-end piment, which is a wine mead mix, by getting a few cans of the uh, Welch's grape juice concentrate, frozen concentrate, and mixing that up with uh, about, I think I used about eight pounds of honey, uh, to a five-gallon batch, and that came out remarkably well. It's not a difficult skill to master. It's definitely something you should look into, and you'll find that making wines uh, or venting is a little bit less involved and less complex uh, than making beer. And the wine snob will get all pissed off about that, but the reality is there's less steps, and that's why it's easier. It's not a less complex product. It's a less complex process for the basic home brewer or home winemaker. Beer can be this easy. You, you do extract brewing. You need a great big pot. Stainless steel is the way to go with that. Uh, you can boil at least two gallons of, let's say, water. Uh, follow a basic recipe of seven pounds of malt extract. Uh, use hops. There's tons of recipes of which hops and which malt extract. But let's say if you want to just do a basic brown ale, seven pounds of, uh, of uh, uh, malt extract maybe a little bit of a dark malt extract to give it a little bit of color, maybe a half a pound to a pound of that mixed in with it, um, or maybe some caramel malt or something like that. Ounce and a half of, of bittering hops of a low alpha acid hop, something like Fugles, uh, in the neighborhood of like 3.5% uh, as your boiling hops, and you can add some hops for aroma or flavor if you'd like to do that. Dump that, you know, boil that 
um, so the, 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 the malt extract gets incorporated, it gets pasteurized, put that off into what's called a carboy or a brewing bucket, top it up with clean water, put an airlock on it, let it ferment out, and then bottling is actually the most complex part for me of beer making. Add about a, a half a cup of corn sugar to three quarters of cups of corn sugar, uh, boiled in water to your wort to get the yeast going again. You get a bottle filler, it's a little wand and a, and a, a siphon hose. Fill your bottles, get a capper, and cap it. That's the whole beer making process. Uh, it's not that complicated. Get a good book and follow it. Uh, Charlie Papazian's books are probably the best. The Complete uh, Joy of Homebrewing, or The Joy of Homebrewing, I think is his first book. And there's a second edition. Both of those are wonderful. Plenty of recipes. Wine easier, faster, quicker. Easiest way, gallon of juice, yeast, lightly fitting lid or a balloon. Uh, understand, though, that yeast is going to get really active and foam up, so you want to probably pour out enough to create some headspace in there. Mess it up once or twice, and you know, you'll be okay with uh, figuring out how much to dump out next time. Simple solution, take your gallon jug, put it inside a five-gallon bucket. If you do get any that spills over the top, no big deal. It goes inside the bucket instead of all over your shelf. So there you go. Best I can do with that one. Now, here's what else he said. And I've never done this before, and I think this is cool. I've sprouted about 50 kiwi seeds a few months ago from a store-bought kiwi. And I now have lots of small plants going. It was easy to do. I put dried seeds in a small plastic bag with some moist peat moss and closed the top with a twist tie so there was a little air in the bag. I set it in a warm spot in about 30 to 35 days, bams, millions of babies all at once. I love the gardening and permaculture stuff, homesteading land and raising small livestock shows. Um, Keith, that's awesome. And I am going to try that. I'm going to get a kiwi, and I'm going to see how many kiwi plants I can produce from one kiwi. Now, of course, you're going to produce those fuzzy kiwis from uh, New Zealand, and I'm a big fan of like the Arctic-style kiwis, the smaller ones without the skin. But that's cool, and that would be interesting to see. And especially with a large piece of land like I have in Arkansas, just throw them out there and see how many of them survive. And if they don't, what am I out one kiwi, I could probably even eat the outer part of the kiwi fruit and call it a draw between me and Mother Nature. Good stuff, folks, and, you know, always see where you can start as far as your plants. And I'm going to tell you the other thing. Uh, a lot of times, like, you know, you think, well, I don't want to start pepper seeds from a pepper that I buy at the grocery store because it's probably a hybrid and I won't get good results. You're probably right. Very few fruits uh, have that problem. Most fruits that you buy, if you can get the seed to sprout and you can get it to grow, it will, it will reproduce for you. Apples are the exception, and apples and pears, I guess, in general, because a lot of them are grafted, uh, and they may not produce uh, as well for you. But things like uh, like kiwis and uh, and a lot of other fruits, you can you if you can get them to sprout and you can get them to grow, you can produce what you're looking for. Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, this next guy, uh, second to last uh, guy I'm going to take today, asked actually three questions. I'm going to answer two, but the third question is good, so I'm going to reserve it for the next show. Uh, this comes from uh, John. John says, uh, Jack, what, what, what am I to look for when purchasing a gun secondhand? For preppers who aren't gun smart, I've been taught how to shoot, but by no means am I a gunsmith. Looking to purchase a gun secondhand at a gun show or from other people. Uh, what things do I need to look for? I plan on taking someone who has knowledge of these matters, and I was just wanting your opinion. Um, there's a couple things you can do. It depends on what you're looking for, first of all. And one thing you have to remember is that usually, I would say usually, there's always a chance that when somebody sold something secondhand, 
uh, they're getting rid of their problems, so it becomes somebody else's. So they have a gun that doesn't shoot well, for instance. Now, a lot of times you get great opportunities there because some idiot that can't shoot thinks it's the rifle's fault and keeps trading his rifles back in uh, instead of learning how to shoot. And very few uh, rifles today don't shoot well. Or it's something like the mounting of the scope is improper and the guy thinks it's the gun. Um, so very few weapons perform poorly from an accuracy standpoint today. Uh, what I would do first is I would say don't go out looking for a gun. Go out looking for a gun or two uh, of a specific variety. So pretend you're this is the best way I know to find a good used gun. Pretend you're going to go buy a new gun. Just not a new gun that came out last week, but a new gun that's been out for five, ten, or more years. Those are the most dependable firearms that have uh, the most chance of being in circulation anyway as a used firearm. Uh, some that's been around for 20 years or more, really great, right? So go out and say, you know, I'm going to choose between two or three guns. And any one of these two or three guns would be adequate for my needs. Now when you go look for used guns, you go with a specific intent. I'm looking for uh, a used Glock 19, or I'm used, looking for uh, a used Smith & Wesson uh, .357 Magnum revolver with 6-inch or 4-inch or whatever barrel. So you know what you're looking for. That will immediately take care of a lot of quality issues, because instead of finding this deal that looks like it's a great deal and having the guy that's selling it to you tell you what a great gun it is, you already know what you're looking for. And then you're going to basically look at the weapon for any obvious flaws. How is its action? Does it is it smooth? Does it does it function well? Does the magazine, uh, if it's a, if a magazine uh, loaded weapon, fire well? There's always a risk, but guns are some of the best made pieces of equipment in the world. They have to be. So if you start with a quality model and find a used model that looks like it's been taken care of, and everything you can test from form, function, and fit seems to line up with what you would expect out of it, 99% of the time you're going to make a good deal there, and you're going to be able to save some money. So that's the best way to do it. Taking someone that knows what they're doing with you, great idea. But that is the way that I've always shopped for used firearms. I've never picked up a used firearm and go, boy, I'd like to have that without doing at least some research on the model itself. I've even been to a gun shop, picked up a really nice looking uh, uh, 20-gauge double-barrel shotgun, uh, great deal on it, handed it back to the guy, went home, did a little research on it, uh, decided, yeah, I wanted that, called the guy on the phone said, hey, do you still have it? He said, I sold it like 20 minutes after you walked out. I was at peace with that. Because I didn't know the weapon, I didn't know the manufacturer, I didn't know if it was you know, something I really wanted to add to my collection. Not getting it, hey, there will always be other opportunities. Uh, had I bought it and found out it wasn't something I wanted, I would have been at less at peace with it. Be willing to walk away, that's my other advice. Uh, the next question is, what four to five garden plants would be good for a beginning gardener in the Ohio area for the fall? Due to where I live, I have to use containers. I'm not sure how complicated some of this is, but I wanted something my boy and I can do together. First, to spend some bonding time. Second, so maybe he will eat what he grows. Food seems to taste better to little ones when they are the ones that did the work. Uh, containers is actually helpful if you can bring them in the house. Uh, you can do a lot of things that I would normally say not to do. Uh, you could do some late-season peppers if you can get some fairly well-started plants uh, and things like that. But the best stuff for the fall going to winter in the northern climates is going to be your leaf-based vegetables for your pots uh, and containers. I'd say things like arugula, lettuce, spinach, and things like that. The nice thing is it's still hot out now. You can go ahead and get some of this stuff started, but it's probably going to bolt on you if you plant it before. I would say last week of August is when you want to look at planting stuff like that. 
Um, right now, you could plant just about anything small enough to stay in that container. But going into the fall, keeping the plants outside during most of the fall, and maybe only offering them some frost protection, I would stick to your your cool weather greens because as soon as they start to get a little bit bigger uh, than tiny, you could start harvesting them, and that's going to keep a kid interested. So you can maybe and you know the kids say I don't like spinach, but fresh spinach is different. Fresh spinach is different than that crap that comes in a frozen block from the store and mixed into a salad. And you can maybe take some salad stuff from the store as well and mix it together so you're doing part of it. So that's what I would do with that. His last question on portable solar power, we're going to hold off to another day. And we're going to go ahead and take our last question. This is one I thought about doing in my new business podcast only, Five Minutes with Jack. I'm going to do it over there with a little bit different of an angle. But when I read this question, I realized how much it applied to this audience as well. Because it's about the state of the economy of the whole and making decisions with your money. This is from Scott. Scott says, hey, Jack, quick question. With everything that keeps coming up about the future of the economy, is it really a smart idea to drop a chunk of change, 10000 or less, on starting a new business? Thanks. Okay, let's start out with, if you're going to tell me you're going to drop $10,000 into starting a business, my first question today is why? What are you going to spend that money on? There's no reason to spend that much money. Even in a product-based business, you know, if you're the manufacturer, you can manufacture as needed and bootstrap in the beginning. And if you're going to be selling a product, you can take pre-orders until you get your first inventory going. Um, I'm not big on brick-and-mortar startups right now. If you're going to do that, I suggest you find a way to do that in a very affordable fashion um, and try to work from home in the meantime. That keeps your starting costs down. What the hell would anybody starting up a business that's never run a business before? If you've run a business before, you're expanding one, or you already know how to do this, and you have a business plan, and you're going to make an investment like that, fine. But my first question for most people is, why are you spending more than $1,000 to start up a business? And honestly, most people, you could set that $1,000 budget for your first six months in business. You know, if you need to do some stuff offline, it takes care of things like business cards, web server, hosting domains. You're still a couple hundred bucks. All right. So, if if you're going to do a, a product based business, then you need to find a drop shipper and start, or do some affiliate marketing first and build up some brand and build up some recognition online. You know, and that, if you're in a specific situation where you need the capital investment, fine. But make sure you need it before you do it. Now, as far as it is, is it a good idea? To start a business right now with everything that's so unpredictable, the answer to that question is absolutely. That's the main reason you should start a business. If you have a business that's profitable for you, even if it doesn't make you a full-time income, it's still something you control and you can depend on more than you'll ever depend on a job. No one will outsource you if you own your own business. No one will fire you if you own your own business. Now, you can go broke You can lose. There's no such thing as a risk-free business. When anybody ever approaches you and says, Hey, dude, I got this risk-free business. Take your right hand, form it into a tight fist, rear back and punch that person square in the face and immediately depart from their presence and never talk to them again because they're a scam artist. Okay, There's no such thing as a risk-free business even when you start from your own. But there can be a low-risk business and those are two very different things. Let's say you decided that you had whatever niche you wanted to go into. You're going to start up a blog, start up a website, maybe eventually try to turn it into a forum, put some revenue model behind that, set that up. 
You work on it for six months, you spend $500, you make no money, you've created a new skill set, you probably will make some money with it eventually, you have knowledge you didn't have before, and you're out $500. Low risk business. If you get involved in some kind of network marketing scam where there's no risk, you'll probably alienate most of your friends and family, and they'll never want to talk to you again. You'll destroy relationships, and you'll risk that. Okay? If you go out and think, I have 10 grand, so I'm just going to dump it into a business and don't really know what you're doing, you'll probably lose all your money. Those are high risk. Slowly creating a brand for yourself and going into a position where you can capitalize on it is low risk, not no risk. You might lose a little bit of money. As far as starting a business, I think it is the number one thing that you can do if it's right for you to ensure your future. Whether times are good or times are bad, I don't care. Here's the beauty of starting a business when times suck. If you can make a business run even moderately effectively during hard times, imagine what happens when times do improve eventually. You're poised. You're lean and you're mean and you have advantages. Now, I want to, I want to give you the other side. There's a crap load to running a business that people don't understand that have never done it before. Even a one-man show blog, if it's actually going to be a business and make money and follow the rules of business. It requires a lot of effort. It requires a ton of commitment. It requires long nights because especially if you're working a full-time job, you got to do the work sometime. No one's going to do it for you. It requires you to stop bullshitting yourself and start putting down real work and real meaningful output. Lots of people talk about it. Few people do it. But is the time right? If you're right for business, the time is always right for you to have one. The question is, have you matured emotionally enough yet to be responsible for a business? Are you willing to put the workload in? Are you willing to understand that following your passion is the path to get there? If you'll do that, yes, it's a good time to start a business. I don't care what the economy is doing. Build a business that fits the current economy. If it fits a crappy economy, it'll fit a good economy. And I'm going to give you right now, Anybody that's ever wanted the ultimate way to understand what type of business to go into. Of course you follow your passion, but I want you, this is the golden rule that no one tells you. There are only two types of products that are marketable. Only two. There are needed and there are wanted. And that's it. Needed would be food. General purpose food from the grocery store. We all have to eat. Okay? Wanted would be organically grown peppers that are locally grown and sourced of a variety you can't find in the store. People that buy that pepper don't buy it because they need it. They buy it because they want it. Needed would be electrical service for your house. Okay. Wanted would be a surfboard. Got it? Alright. And you can just keep going with it. Needed gasoline for your car. Wanted accessories for a car. You do not want to be in business today as a small business person selling anything because you think people need it. Everyone needs. Bad idea. Big guys will kick your freaking ass. And people spend the least amount of money they possibly can for the things that they need. Period. Buy gas? I need it. So... Everybody has it. So the gas station with the lowest price, as long as it's convenient to get to, that's the one I'm going to buy from. I need food. 
So I'm going to go to the store, and if two items are alike and identical and one costs less, that's the one I'm going to buy. During a recession, people will save money to buy a cool surfboard. If it's their passion, if it's what they love. So you want to be in business selling people what they want, not what they need. If you do that, in this modern age where you can reach 6 billion people with the internet, you can find a few thousand that always can scrape up the bucks to pay you for what they want. Entertainment, product, information, I don't care. But you want to sell product that is, um, that is desired, not something that people need. There's more to that. There's three components to a needed product, to a desired product. Three things. And uh, if you want to know what those are, tune in to the next episode. I do a five minutes with Jack. I don't know if I'll get it this week, but check out jackspearco.com for more on business. And uh, the next one I do, I'm going to tell you what the three components of any desired product are. And you have to have at least one of those three to make that product fly. With that, I am going to wrap up. And I do think that business topics occasionally on the Survival Podcast are valid. Um, these are uncertain times. The economy is in the crapper. Times are going to get worse. Whether they get better between now and getting worse, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. That's what I see coming, a false bubble recovery and another crash that's worse. But even if I'm wrong, even if we go into a sustained recovery, there'll be another collapse. There'll be another bad time. Look at history. It's the way it's always been, cycles up and down of the economy. When you own your own business, you control your own destiny. Some people it's not right for them. So it's up to you whether it's right for you. But if you think it is, give it a shot. It can be a very low-risk endeavor. It can be a great way to have more control over your own life. With that, I will sign off. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.